Evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 259, on May 18th, 2022. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the executive director, almost my old title, of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, right here in Missoula, Montana, in beautiful western Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? <laughs> good evening. Well, I just... Just got a frog in my throat, so it's a good thing I have a drink. But yes, I'm here in central Oklahoma for a while longer, but we only have like seven more days of school, I think. Uh, maybe six, actually, because, uh, yeah, a week from Friday is like eighth grade graduation, and that's it. So I am, uh, for, for a few more days, the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School. And I am looking forward to moving to North Carolina this summer and starting a new middle school computer science teaching role at Providence Day School. So lots of excitement. House is not sold yet, but hey, maybe it's sold today. It showed twice today, so fingers are crossed. Absolutely. Well, um, while I'd love to talk about real estate with you, Dr. Fryer, I think we have another agenda. What is the EdTech Situation Room all about? Well, we missed a week last week, which we sometimes do, but we generally are here on Wednesday evenings to talk about the recent technology news viewed through an educational lens, and we will probably end up talking a little bit about uh, big tech and the tech correction, but <clears throat> we have all of our links on a Google Doc that you can find at edtechsr.com slash links, and our topics tonight are Google and Google I.O., um, the tech correction, privacy, Apple, App World, Web3, and cryptocurrency, and the Ukraine-Russia war, uh, as well as AI. We'll also have some geeks of the week. And uh, since we did miss a week last week, we have a large list. But I guess that's fairly normal. So I think, don't you think we should start with some real tech news, Dr. Neifer, instead of just going right right into the rabbit hole? Or the, tech <laughs> the tech correction and privacy and all of those stuff. Yeah, that's a great idea. So I have to admit to you that even though I'm a Google guy, I did not catch a whole lot of Google I.O. last week. But more importantly, what I did catch, I thought was pretty snoozy, right? Like I thought it was relatively meh. Uh, and part of that is, and I will say that, that I did catch some media before Google IO that, uh, and maybe Google is catching, uh, this message that, you know, instead of announcing new things, maybe Google should focus on polishing the things they already have. And, and to be quite frank, I think that could be said of Microsoft and Apple and even the Amazon, uh, uh, ecosystem as well. But shall we start with, uh, the good stuff at Google IO? Absolutely. And I, I did not watch the entire thing, but I was able <clears throat> to catch a bit of it. So that sounds like a great place to start. Okay, well, let's start with, I believe you shared an article regarding um, Google Maps. Yeah, so I am always on the lookout for uh, anything to do with geo maps. And it's one of these things that I... Um, you know, enjoy dabbling with, but I need encouragement to oftentimes say, oh, yeah, we need to go back and do a map project. So during the, the keynote, uh, Google was doing some good live tweeting. And I should have this as, as a geek of the week because I, I expanded a Google Twitter list. Uh, some of their employees, such as Miriam Daniel, VP of Google Maps, who's the author of this article um, on the Google blog. It says the keyword, uh, but it's their product. This is, I guess, their products blog. Uh, this was from May 11th, and the headline is Immersive View Coming Soon to Maps, plus more updates. And um, it promises a more immersive, intuitive app, or sorry, a more intuitive map. <clears throat> and uh, the video that it has of uh, downtown London, it's really amazing, uh, showing just this incredible, you know, 3D panorama, what they call immersive view. I think that must be like, uh, well, there's Big Ben and um, cathedrals and, you know, just really amazing places in London. And you are able to, to basically see like a drone view. But these are buildings, I guess, that have been uh, both, you know, photographed with uh, satellites as well as perhaps other cameras, but then put together with uh, Google tools. Um, but then in addition, it's like... I don't know, Google Maps meets drone flyby, because in addition to these, um, you know, amazing 
panoramas from an aerial view, you're also able to actually go into buildings uh, and zoom around. And so um, that's that's pretty cool. So um, I I've honestly found myself using uh, Apple Maps a little bit more than I have in the past, in part because some different uh, restaurant apps or just other things or sometimes when people will share a link um I don't know. I had really sworn off Apple Maps at one point because I had been led astray a couple times, not <clears throat> to any devastating effect, like trying to drive into a, you know, body of water like we've, you know, heard about some some silly folks doing in the past, but just, you know, not not going where we needed to go. But I do think Apple's done better with this. Uh, one of the things I've noticed with the maps uh, using them both is Apple was was like showing the stop signs and the traffic lights a lot more prominently, and it looks like app, you know, Google is doing that as well. So. Anyway, some cool things coming to uh, Google Maps. And on an educational note, I'd just say, not, not that we're all going to be teaching with, with phones and, and having all the kids get out their phones, but it depends on the age of students. <clears throat> Google Maps in the browser is better than ever with its features and even supporting Street View and, and things like that, where you don't have to have the full version of Google Earth in order to uh, utilize some of those tools. Um, but seriously, if we're not taking advantage of some of these phenomenal uh, geographic tools to help students make connections to places, uh, to cultures, to history, uh, even to math, right? Because there's, you know, measurement tools and things like that. Really, really phenomenally powerful. It has been for a long time and it just keeps getting better. So any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is one of the most underutilized Google tool sets as well. And I've seen some really phenomenal classroom projects that involve this particular tool set. And uh, especially if you are of the social studies variety in, in the classroom, which was my background. I was a, a, a history, geography, and government teacher primarily when I was in the classroom. I think there's an incredible amount of cool things that you can build with this. And you, know, you think about it from this standpoint that, you know, we're not that far off from when, you know, coloring maps with markers was considered to be a, a pretty interactive experience. And that's just uh, something that you don't need to bother with anymore because there's really interesting things you could do to both tell stories with maps, but also utilize them as learning tools uh, 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 via uh, visualizations and feeding data into systems in order to help students draw conclusions and, and, and process the world around them. So I couldn't agree more. And, and in fact, while I don't think that was uh, considered uh, to be uh, their headline here, because there were, were a lot of, 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 of products introduced, to me, that caught my eye as well. I'll toss in two more links here, and who knows, maybe somebody hasn't heard of this before, but <clears throat> Jerome Berg, who's a fantastic uh, California-based educator, created years ago the Google Lit Trips project, which originally was using Google Earth. Um, now there's a lot of this that you can actually access through Google Maps, um, but if you are an English teacher, if you are a language arts teacher, <clears throat> the ability to, you know, take um, a book that, that you've studied uh, even something like the Iliad or the Odyssey, which have, I think, a couple different versions sometimes, depending on whether it's going to be a Mediterranean version or another. And it's been a while since I've done a deep dive into those. Uh, but that really, really is fantastic. We have had a Google certification group at our school that has met almost every month this year. And uh, one of the things that, well, I think this was the best session um, that we actually had was on um, what I would call geomaps. And so I'll drop the link into to this uh, show with media site that I've maintained since 2013 with a lot of different geomap resources. But the thing a lot of people don't realize is that this isn't like YouTube in terms of let's just look and watch the maps. You can do that and consume the map and just, you know, use it as a sort of passive media. But you can create your students can create. They can create tours. They can drop pins. They can do things collaboratively. Uh, it just, I love, I love, love um, being able to learn more about the maps. And I, I don't know if they're still doing them, but <clears throat> not too many years ago, uh, Google was hosting Geo Institutes. I went to one on my own nickel up in Lewiston, Maine, uh, and spent a couple days just diving. You know, maybe it was one full day. I don't know. But it was just diving deep into these different Google tools and, and having folks really just kind of blow, blow your mind. Um, and so anyway, I think if anybody else has resources related to Geo Maps and, and Google Maps, I really think that... Um, those are things that we need to utilize ourselves. Uh, we do that with trips now where we'll create, you know, map pins and 
you know, with, with CarPlay in the car, it's pretty easy to be able to, to go to those um, or on a device. So from a personal standpoint, in terms of travel, now that we're getting to, to travel a little bit more and that kind of thing, but just, you know, for your own students, their own neighborhoods, finding their school, finding their houses, uh, being able to have a sense of place and uh, the connection with, with so many different things. Geomaps are fantastic. So yeah, Google. And yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't a headline, but that was one of those things of like, woo, that caught my yeah. eye. And well, I'm glad to see that update. And, and very clear implications to classrooms too, I think would be the other thing I would state there. And then you also posted an article, uh, Wes, about Google Assistant updates. You want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah. So, um, the, the Google Assistant is, um, you know, the, the smart speaker of choice in our family. Um, Jason, I think continues, you're, you're bilingual when it comes to the smart assistants, yes. Madam A. Uh, but we went ahead and, and have been full on with, uh, with a Google assistant. And so I honestly thought, and I did not watch every minute of the keynote, but of the, of what I watched, and then I watched some of those like the Google keynote in 18 minutes or something, you know, that, that summarized it all. This was really impressive. Uh, and so what it is, what, one of the big things is just trying to make the conversations more natural. Um, now, this could also weird people out. But in addition to matching your voice, uh, you can also opt in to face match if you're using. Now, this just says the Nest Hub Max. We have a Nest Hub, but it's not the, the Max. So maybe we can't actually opt into that part. Um, but they're, they're bringing their facial recognition just so that, you know, you can just walk up to the device and, and start talking. But then, uh, in terms of conversation, a couple things, um, they are using what they call the tensor chip, uh, to increase the fluidity of real time conversation. And so you don't have to use the, uh, what is it called? This not the hot, I guess the hot word, uh, which is usually, Hey, G. Um, as frequently. And so they're just, they're recognizing your voice and being able to respond and really important focus on privacy, not only in this discussion of the keynote, but later they made a claim in the Gmail part that they never sell your, they never advertise against what you have in Gmail and they never sell that to third parties, which I, I really thought that was true that they did that. But they were talking about how this is is mostly all on device. And so this sounds like Apple, right, where it's not all going to the cloud to then be, you know, archived in part of your opaque, you know, footprint that can be data mined and, and all that kind of stuff. So a real strong emphasis on privacy. Um, and uh, this is actually not from the I.O. conference, but I. I went to a face-to-face -to -face conference in Orlando, Florida, uh, the Atlas conference a couple of weeks ago, and I and I learned since our last show how they did the uh, closed captioning, built-in tools in Microsoft PowerPoint and Google Slides. It was amazing when the presenters and I think all the featured speakers and keynoters had this turned on. I have not done a presentation with this yet, but when you had on this closed captioning feature uh, in Google Slides or in PowerPoint, it was uncanny how, you know, fantastically accurate, not perfect, of course, but how accurate it was. And again, that's a tie to AI, to voice recognition, what we see happening with the smart assistants, um, lots of those kinds of technologies continuing to mature. So does that have an immediate classroom impact? Um, my, my geek of the week on our last show was this Google, what was it called? The Google Teachable Machine, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, that was just uh, outstanding. And, and I, I don't know if I'm going to get to pull off a lesson with that before the end of school with the, with the kids this year. But AI is big. It's changing our world. And there are some ways that students can, can experience some of the power of that, even though we're probably not, you know, having a smart speaker in our, in our classroom. We may have Siri, you know, depending on the kinds of devices that we have. Um, but glad to see those kinds of, uh, innovations that that's not the kind of like seismic change of, oh my gosh, it's, you know, a whole new category of product or, you know, it's not that kind of thing. It's more the general continued evolution of the tools. Um, but exciting because those are things that I actually use pretty much every day is for, in terms of the, this, uh, text to speech. Am I saying that right? Speech to text. Um, smart assistant and, and then dictation, you know, I'm using that stuff all the time. So right. glad to see those continuing to mature.
And then I'll just note, um, you know, and I'm, I'm just looking at a couple of different random lists from Google IO. Um, the w- one thing that, you know, in my mind is literally three years too late for me personally is the announcement of the Pixel Watch. Uh, there is some excitement around, uh, Google trying to take Watch OS seriously. The bottom line for me, however, is that I should, sorry, Watch OS is what, uh, uh, Apple calls that. It's Wear OS is what uh, Google calls their watch operating system. And I have to say, while I was a Google, watch, or I guess I should call it Android Wear enthusiast, um, uh, it, it just didn't work consistently enough for me uh, to be able to rely on it every day. And one of the reasons why I moved back to the Apple architecture for my personal devices is because the, the Apple Watch is something that I purchased. And unlike the Android Wear watches, I felt like this was here to stay with me. And in fact, I, I know very few people that have purchased an Apple Watch that aren't still wearing it, whereas I know very few people that were buying Android watches that were sticking with it. And so maybe too little too late. But I have to say that the, the ecosystem on the Google side is getting pretty well-rounded. Uh, they uh, uh, did release additional uh, Pixel Buds. They now have Pixel Bud Pros, and they're starting to pick up some of the wonderful uh, strategies that uh, uh, Apple is using, including having the devices follow you. I'm sorry, having the the uh, connection follow you from device to device. I think that's a, a pretty good sign for Google. And I also feel as though um, Android 13 looks like a nice mature operating system that were released uh, uh, later this fall. Um, the bottom line for me is that and this we, we've had this conversation probably four years in a row at both uh, Apple events and, and Google events. The days are over where big, broad changes or new features are coming to these operating systems. These are polishes. And while I would agree with commenters that uh, probably all of these platforms should be working more on polish and 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 fortifying as opposed to new features, um, I feel like Google is pulling that off, that there was a lot of uh, new interesting things that are happening under the hood as opposed to big, broad new sets of features. Messaging still a mess, um, uh, particularly um, uh, uh, messaging apps are, are still a bit of a mess on Android. Um, I would also argue that, uh, the privacy features in Android, uh, uh, pale in comparison to what's happening over at Apple, but I still remain a Google devotee. Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, to keep things, uh, go ahead. Did you do the one about the Chromebook screencast feature? Um, not yet. I, well, no, it's on. Yeah, I did. Okay. I was just, if you were going to move on from Google, oh, I no, 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 no. I, we're, we're going to go to big Google news now. Okay. Right? Excellent. Big Google IO news. So, okay. Uh, these articles are related. Um, the first one is, uh, Chrome OS 101 has been released. Um, and very exciting news, um, from the folks at the Chrome OS team. Um, we weren't here, uh, last week, but I would have reported that Chrome 101 um, had been delayed and then finally released last week, uh, that I think it was two or three weeks late. And so that's something that, uh, is interesting to note. But there's a couple big things here. The first one is that this is a little thing, but there is a new boot screen, um, for Chrome OS devices. And it is a black screen as opposed to a white screen. And having turned on a Chromebook in the middle of the night before, um, I have been greeted by the, you know, super glow of the Chrome OS logo. That's now been replaced by a black screen and a white logo. There's also a couple of interesting features that I think are probably pretty interesting to tech directors that utilize Google devices in their district. The first one is that Google's been working on a strategy for having firmware updates, not just to the laptop, but also things plugged into your laptop. And there's a new set of options um, in the um, uh, in the firmware up. I'm sorry, in the update screen that has firmware updates. And not only can you download updates to the firmware to your laptop, so that's the software that is in the background on your hardware that helps run the operating system. But also, if you have something like a dongle plugged in, let's say it's a Logitech dongle, theoretically, those are the types of devices that will start now getting uh, pings uh, from various services to update the firmware. And we've talked about this. It's been a year or two since we last had an article on this, but a surprisingly large number of peripherals like that. So, you know, wireless dongles for keyboards and mice and other devices can oftentimes have huge 
massive uh, security risk to them because they're they're just not updated that often. If you have a cheap one that's not updated ever, it could really introduce real security issues on your laptop. Um, a couple other quick things, and then I'll get to what I think is the most exciting feature. Um, there is also some um, uh, new ways to recover over the network. Right now, if you completely bork your Chrome operating system software, in other words, you can't power wash it or reset it, which happens once in a while. It's happened to me probably four or five times in the last uh, you know, seven or eight years of being a Chromebook user. Usually what you'd have to do is go to a third computer, or a third computer, a second computer, take a USB drive. You can install a little uh, extension on your browser, and it will help you download the firmware to stick into the USB drive and then reinstall the operating system. Um, and um, uh, uh, for new Chrome, new, new Chromebooks, we're talking about stuff released in 2022, at least for now, you now have the option for what's referred to as an internet uh, recovery or network recovery. So you can essentially uh, say, well, here's my networking information, my Wi-Fi uh, password, or if you plug in uh, your your Chromebook or Chromebox into a wired network, you can now restore from the internet, which I think is an incredibly uh, a, a good feature and I would imagine helps out some IT directors quite a bit as well. But Wes, you also mentioned, I think probably uh, the, the most exciting new feature in uh, Chrome OS 101, which is a new screencasting tool. You want to talk about that for a second? Well, actually, I want to mention that I don't think it's in the article, but it appears that the number one it pain point for us with our Chromebooks this year has been resolved with this new Google update. And it's what we've called the loop in Minecraft education. And it has been so frustrating. Literally every week I've got kids that have had to power wash in order to get Minecraft education working. I thought it had something to do with some security settings or something maybe that, that our IT admins have done. But anyway, this last week for the first time without a power wash, but an update to that latest OS those uh, loop issues where kids just, it would just, it would be in an infinite loop and it wouldn't let them log into their Microsoft account became resolved. So I don't know what that was. It's been maddening, but, but that's resolved. Um, I actually don't know about this new screen, I, this uh, new screenshot and screencasting, but I'm super excited about it because this year for fifth and grade, fifth and sixth grade media literacy, we did not do any uh, screencastify we went 100% with the built-in tools to not only take screenshots, but also screen casts and do screen recording. So, yeah, please illuminate me because I am excited about any updates that they've done to it. Yeah, so this has been uh, stuck in a beta channel for a while, and it had been called Projector, which was the internal name for this. And we reported on this seven, eight, nine weeks ago, I think, that this was coming up soon. But the screencast feature, it's now called Just Screencast, uh, it's not just about recording your screen. It also adds a lot of new features, including the ability to annotate video, which I think is super great. Think like Telestrator, uh, John Madden Telestrating um, on a screen. And um, uh, one of the things that, that I think of myself whenever I think of screencasting on any device is that it really just adds some extra communication ability uh, especially when you're trying to explain something to someone else via email or perhaps chat, right? Like I, and, and we, uh, it's, it happens a lot more than it did like say 10 years ago, but, uh, we have students now that will put in support tickets with, uh, my, my day job, the state virtual school in Montana and share screencasts as opposed to, uh, just trying to describe what the situation is. And having this feature set built directly into the operating system is an extraordinary movement for Forward for Chrome. Uh, uh, not, not that there isn't third-party options. There are dozens of them, right? But the fact that it's built directly into it and no extension needs to be installed means that effectively all continuously updated Chromebooks in your school building now have the screencast ability, which I think is pretty extraordinary. It also saves it directly to Google Drive, so it automatically syncs to Google Drive. And uh, like the screen capture tool, which also keeps getting more and more feature rich, um, uh, it, it's competitive with commercial alternatives, which I think is, is pretty extraordinary. 
Yeah, that is fantastic. The the built-in tool, which we've had since the beginning of this school year, so it was interesting. Our Chromebooks, like, shipped because we got them new in August. Um, they shipped in, like, you know, May or June or something like that. And the OS that was originally on them didn't have the built-in screen capture and screen recording feature, but with an update in August, boom, they did. And so all three trimesters this year, we've used those. Um, but what you're talking about with the sync automatically to Google Drive is huge because up to this point, it has been a local save in the downloads folder. And yeah, the ability to do this annotation and markup, um, I'm reminded of my favorite Mac screencasting tool, uh, which is commercial and you have to buy uh, ScreenFlow, which I still love yeah. and I use from time to time. But then I've used uh, during the pandemic uh, and still now use Loom, L-O-O-M, <clears throat> which has a free version for educators. Sign in with Google. Um, it's kind of cool. It has your your picture there in the corner. What I'm going to observe that's probably still important, though, is going to be the video RAM and the video card that you have in your Chromebook. I know that when we're running Minecraft education and my kids are screen recording, and this is on a, you know, uh, spring model 2021, you know, Dell 11, 11 Chromebook, uh, 3220, I think is the model. Um, there's flashing on the screen and it looks kind of glitchy when they're actually recording it. The final video itself is recorded. Um, but I think this points to, you know, the importance of, of having some robust processing power in yeah. your, in your Chromebook. And like uh, we had said, you know, long time ago in past episodes, you know, when the Chromebooks originally were having like, Hey, do you want two gigs or four gigs of Ram? No, there's no way, you know, you wanted to just go with two gigs. And so not only having more Ram, but having a more robust uh, processor, you know, is going to allow you to do more stuff with video. But the fact this is built in is huge because yes, Screencastify was a free, you know, extension. And um, I'm sure they're, you know, wringing their hands. Just what do they call that? The, um, Sherlocking, you know, when like Apple would would take this feature and, and bundle it and put it in. But um, I definitely believe that not only capturing screenshots and if you and can you annotate is this did they did they update the screenshot uh, feature too with some annotation or did you know? Um, well, I think that that's been uh, a couple versions back that the annotation has improved pretty dramatically on screenshots because that was one of the issues with the built-in tool uh, that was released in 2021. Um, the other the other interesting feature that I don't think there's anyone that's doing this uh, speaking, it's like Sherlock Plus. Um, it also auto generates a transcript uh, uh, that comes in a time code file, which means you can close caption the video. And that's I mean, especially in light of the fact that accessibility is such an important part of of, of distance and digital learning in 2022. And yet the tool sets for them are, are not super advanced that's it's just really thoughtful and you know one of the reasons why i'm having a problem moving away from a chromebook environment even though i'm 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 kind of mac guy again is that every time i open my chromebook there's something new and interesting uh in the operating system it's getting so polished and 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 really quite advanced that for again if you're if you live in the web-based world and you don't need specific applications and can live in the web i just think there's no reason to invest uh, no, no reason not to invest. Is that what I'm trying to say? Yes, because you want to invest in, you know, a $500 medium, uh, uh, medium end Chromebook that I think could easily be a daily driver, driver for even a power user. And what I'd add to that is if, if you think you can't live in the cloud, maybe you need to have a conversation with somebody who is, is even more into cloud applications for the kinds of things that you're doing. Because even, you know, video editing with WeVideo, um, but certainly, you know, just about any kind of photo editing, uh, media creation, you know, whether it's Adobe Express, uh, Adobe full-on creative cloud, you know, you're a big Canva user, which I haven't played a lot with, but these, these tools are web-based and they're incredibly powerful. So I am, um, I feel like I have to preface a comment like this with, I, I love, well, you kind of do too now too. We love our Macs. We love our Apple stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like the power of this with Google is so fantastic. Yeah. And when you look at how many Chromebooks are deployed in schools and how important the cost factor is, I'm actually going to be moving to um, an Apple school. I think that iPads and, and Mac laptops are 
our standard are going to be across the board for our students and for teachers. Um, but for the situation I've been in here in Oklahoma City, uh, in the middle school, man, the Chromebook has been a fantastic choice. And, um, you know, I just I, I'm wanting my kids to create media all the time. That's one of the, the big things that I believe and want to do and that our, the classes I teach are focused on. And, and I have not felt constrained and limited in any way by having Chromebooks uh, and, and even the stylus that we've had has just it's been fantastic. I mean, the only thing is like on Procreate, when you're doing a sketch note, it does this awesome export of like time lapse, you know, step by step, exactly what you drew. And I don't have a tool that'll do that. But yeah, that we don't we don't have to have that. There's we have we've, we've been able to do everything that we want to do, um, you know, and do it really well. And then when a kid has a device go down, OK, here, here you go. You know, I, I was I loaned my Chromebook out to a student today. No problem. Just log yourself in. Got all your stuff. Yeah, uh, it's just just phenomenal. So well, I'll mention it. I, I'm sure I've mentioned this maybe 13 or 14 times in the history of our podcast, but I'll never forget uh, this was three or four years ago when I was carrying around. I believe it was a Windows laptop at the time for work um, and it it was broken. It just stopped working on a work trip that I absolutely needed a, 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 a good laptop at. And as it turns out, um, I had been using a Chromebook, um, uh, uh, you know, fairly regularly, but that wasn't what I was happening to carry that weekend. I walked in Staples and $130 later, I walked out with my laptop and it took 10 minutes from plug in to work where I completely had my entire desktop system back, wallpaper links, uh, password saved in the browser, every piece of software or extension I had installed, and I was back to normal again and was able to do my job. And um, that that just that's just unparalleled in comparison to the the Mac OS and 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 the Windows operating systems. It just doesn't work like that there. And, so, and if you've experienced, as I think for sure, Jason and I both have multiple times, the pain of yourself moving to a new computer and having to migrate all the applications and, and everything, um, helping others, especially people that haven't been doing diligent backups. But even when you have, you know, the amount of gigabytes, the, the installation, the time that's involved, it, it really, it, I remember the first time it was actually in Lewiston, Maine, that I saw a Chromebook and it booted in eight seconds. And I was like, yeah. what are you even yeah. talking about? Like game changer. And that same kind of thing, like you don't have this happen I don't, I don't think many of us do just really frequently where you have this like, wow, that changes the game. And so, and Chrome really has done that. So I, I got a question for you, Jason. We very likely could be purchasing some personal devices. Um, it looks like our daughter will actually get a MacBook Air at her school where she's going in Virginia. Awesome. Prep school. Um, so we're off the hook for, for needing to buy her computer. And then the Academy, it looks like she'll go to the Air Force Academy after that. <clears throat> they have Windows computers that they purchase. Uh, but for uh, my wife, who doesn't uh, have a teaching position and may, may be doing something else next year, we're not exactly sure. Um, Chromebook advice. You were buying a Chromebook tomorrow, kind of what you're saying, like a mid-range, maybe 500, 400. Do you have a model? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Well, first and foremost, there's two things I would say. The first one is that if you've got time and you don't mind being slightly risky about it, I still think that Chromebooks are good. Chromebooks are one of the most underpriced things when you're buying them on the used market on eBay. And I've been really trying hard not to buy uh, buy more Chromebooks because I don't need them. Is is the is is the the fact of the matter. But um, I'm trying to see if I have the one sitting up here or not, but um, I'll give you an example of this. Six weeks ago, there was uh, there's a beautiful HP model. It's the 10th generation i5 model um, that uh, these were uh, $700 fall 2020. And I know that because we purchased a half dozen of them at work um, uh, in the early pandemic. And I just happened to be surfing one day and there was one that had, didn't have a bid on it yet. And I picked it up for $115. Uh, it was uh, less than a year and a half old. Uh, uh, according to the, the Chrome statistics, uh, it only had nine battery cycles on it. Um, it was practically a new thing. The only thing it didn't come with was a charger, but since it's USB-C, it doesn't matter. I carry around the big clunky Apple USB-C charger because it's so high quality and I trust that hardware. But um, there's two uh, there's two Chromebooks I want to highlight. The first one um, comes from Kevin Tofel posted the article. It was today even on the upcoming Chromebook 
uh, Acer Chromebook Spin 714, which is a 14-inch Chromebook that is right now listed at $750. That's going to come down in price almost certainly because most of these high-end Chromebooks do. And it's going to have the 12th generation i5 chip with uh, 8 to 16 gigabytes of RAM and a 256 gigabytes uh, of hard drive storage. But also it has a 14-inch screen with thin bezels on it. So it's going to be a nice immersive experience despite its relatively svelte um, uh, 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 svelte uh, 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 size. And so I, I trust Kevin Toffel. Uh, he's a, a, an excellent commentator. They're the only two websites that I go to for Chrome news are about Chromebooks and uh, Chrome Unboxed, uh, Robbie Payne's website. Both are, are excellent uh, news sources for Chrome operating system, but I'd be considering um, that as one of the Chromebooks. And then we just needed to pick up a couple of Chromebooks at work for a couple of new part-time staff. And I'm going to uh, pause for just a second and fill this with time as I go to Best Buy to look at uh, what models we picked up. But uh, there was a, a, a Chromebook sale at Best Buy a couple of weeks ago. So we picked them up with our corporate account. And I'm incredibly impressed with an HP Chromebook that has a wonderful build quality, a great high resolution screen, and just a fabulous keyboard. And that uh, Chromebook model is known as the almost there. I thought I had faster internet than this. Running out of things to say. The HP 13.5 2 in 1 X360 Chromebook. And I'm amazed by the build quality. It is as good as the MacBook Air. And right now it's, it's, uh, that's a $949 Chromebook. I picked it up for $550. It's currently $649, um, at Best Buy. And, um, you know, nine years of updates, um, all metal chassis, uh, beautiful, uh, uh, a beautiful keyboard, uh, fingerprint reader for security. Can you say that, the name of the name of it again? The model? Yeah, it's an HP. 13.5, 2-in-1, X360. Okay, cool. I'm getting that in our show notes. And so um, I love that a lot, and I think it's uh, – uh, and I've only played around with it for about an hour, but it has that um, nice 11th generation – um, i5 chip in it and, uh, uh, it, which is way faster than, uh, the 10th generation i5 chips. So, you know, that, uh, you know, you can buy, you know, at the $649 mark, you're pretty close to, you know, if you wanted to buy an Apple refurbished MacBook Air, right? That's $200, maybe $250 more, depending on which model you're going for. But if you are satisfied with the Chrome universe, it's it's an outstanding uh, model. But that said, though, if you want to play a, a little bit of of of, of eBay, eBay Parcheesi, there's just opportunities all the time of underpriced premium Chromebooks sitting around on eBay. That's awesome. Well, it'll be interesting. You know, when my wife taught uh, at a school called Positive Tomorrow's downtown, she was on a Chromebook for four years, really liked it, and kind of had, you know, it was kind of a challenge switching over to the Mac. Now she's been on the Mac for four years, so it'll be interesting to see what it is she wants to do. But it is good to see those options, and we're probably actually going to update her phone. She's still on a uh, home button, you know, SE, uh, and she's doing so much on her phone all the time now yeah. for her health coaching. So anyway, again, Swappa.com, if you're not familiar Great place to pick up some used iPhones, and we'll be doing that again. All right. Well, we better get on to some other news besides the Googles. What would you like to go next? Well, um, let's do a quick privacy article, and then we could jump into the rabbit hole known as the tech correction. Uh, I spotted this article this morning, and uh, it, it really echoes what we've been talking about for years now. But uh, this is from 9to5Mac. I think this appeared in other uh, outlets as well. Uh, ben Lovejoy writes that your online behavior and location are shared with advertisers, advertisers an average of 749 times a day. And they're talking about a report, and there's a couple interesting things about this. Um, uh, the Irish Council for Civil, Lib Civil Liberties uh, talks about uh, uh, companies that are selling your data, either in aggregate um, or as part of data sets, uh, that um, Google, this is citing the report, Google and other key player players 
in a high-velocity surveillance-based uh, ad auction system are processing and passing people's data billions of times a day. Um, uh, RTB, um, uh, which is the, the, the reference here to real-time bidding, which is one of the ways uh, that advertisers do uh, get your data, right, so they can target ads to you based on uh, where you're at and what you're doing. Um, uh, it's the biggest data breach ever recorded. It tracks and shares what people view online in their real-world location 294 times, uh, billion times a day in the U.S. and 197 billion times a day in Europe. Now, there's a couple things about this. First, creepy. Right. And, you know, Dr. Fryer refers quite often surveillance capitalism. Well, this is this is what this is. Right. That's that's surveillance capitalism 101. But I would add a second note here that uh, Europe is doing a much more aggressive job at regulating this. And there's two ways to look at this. You could either say, A, who, uh, you know, Europe is half the number of times per person than in the United States. The United States is double where our regulations are much less nuanced and much less hardcore. But you could also say, despite all the efforts that Europe is making to try to stop this capitalism, really, st- or, or I'm sorry, stop this tracking, um, it's still pretty bad and uh, still a major issue uh, for uh, European users. And, you know, um, uh, the the bottom line is is that uh, you can go out and buy maybe not necessarily you know West Friars data right although I I do know that there are some services that that are more in the clandestine world that where you can do that but I do know from talking to people that do buy data sets uh, and I've had this conversation with people in both nonprofit and for profit industries if you want to go find uh you know a list of email addresses of people that uh, visited a physical location recently, it's not that hard to do that. And in fact, you know, um, that's a very real way that you can not necessarily directly violate someone's privacy, but de facto violate their privacy by getting a list of, you know, those people that have gone into that store or been in this town or been in this location and just had their cell phone with them. We need to have some regulation around the collection and sale of data. There is not a single disincentive right now in the United States to for for the for the perpetual you know collection and aggregation of this of this data uh, about vast numbers of of people, and so that has created. Um, you know, economies that, that have been utilized in different ways by different companies. But <clears throat> I want to share a quick anecdote. Um, so I was, was on a camp out with our sixth graders the last two days. It was wonderful. We had a chance to go down to, uh, Southern Oklahoma. And I don't know if everybody knew this, but the Arbuckle Mountains, I guess, are like some of the oldest rocks that are on the surface of the earth. Uh, well, I should take this back on the surface of North America, um, are actually, you know, in Oklahoma in the, in the Arbuckle Mountains, which we use that term loosely. It's nothing like what you're seeing behind Dr. Neifer on his wonderful, you know, background there, which is that, by the way, right outside his door. So, um, the dad I was visiting with had his 30 something year old son has worked for Microsoft and has worked for Google and a whole bunch of companies, but part of his stint, was working with a team that ballooned to about 300 Googlers that were working to try to respond to GDPR and to, uh, you know, cries for privacy and trying to limit some of the things that Google was doing. But but ultimately, he left Google uh, convinced that they are the the quote unquote evil, (laughs) evil empire, evil company that uh, people had talked about, basically, that there was a lot of window dressing and you know, uh, shuffling of papers and, and creation of, of responses and legalese. But, you know, the, the bottom line was Google wanted to keep on doing exactly what they were doing uh, because it's extremely profitable. And to an extent, you know, if we want to put the sort of metacognition lenses on ourselves, you know, Google I.O., it, it is a lot about propaganda. I mean, it is a lot about developers and getting folks excited. But, you know, I fall, I, I plead guilty to this with my kids. You know, I'm showing them, Flutter Pinball. I don't know if I didn't put this as a Geek of the Week, but it's this web-based uh, game that they brought out, which is really awesome and cool, and it's shown off the the features and the power. And you know, it's it's not an either or; it's both. I do believe we have incredibly cool, wonderful, transformative technologies that are making a difference in our lives as consumers and individuals, but also as teachers and educators and learners. And at the same time, 
<clears throat> we have some consequences and some things happening um, that have had impacts and continue to on representative democracy, on human rights, on uh, the ability for these uh, data sets to be weaponized and not only utilized by political groups, but to be utilized by individuals, people who want to stalk folks, um, you know, people who want to do harm and do harm to others. So uh, it really is complicated. <clears throat> but I will say that I think we need to have some level of regulation around the, the perpetual collection of data uh, and the sale of that, because I don't know if you've ever used Glimpse or the, the show my share my live location, Jason. You can do that in Google Maps now, actually, when you're on a trip. Mm -hmm. We've done that with our family before. Glimpse kind of has, has not been wonky and hadn't worked as much when we travel. But it's cool because it sends a text message, you know, to your relatives. You don't post this on social media, but it shows here I am. You know, here's my live location. And you might never think, oh, I would just share that with the entire world. But what you're describing in this article is basically that, saying, you know, we're, we are through our devices uh, sharing our location live and that basically, you know, companies have monetized that and and they can purchase that and, and utilize that. And for a lot of folks, they're shrugging their shoulders and saying, eh, I don't care. It, do, it doesn't matter to me. But <clears throat> when these things become normalized and we have millions of people, you know, shrugging their shoulders, saying it doesn't matter, um, you know, it, it, it does matter. And right. the, the ways that the, that this data is utilized. And again, we need students to be using data and to be savvy that the kinds of AB testing that these companies can do with all sorts of, of things. And just the, the wide gap, I would say between let's look at the K-12 math curriculum and what, you know, data, uh, you know, analysts and, and probably just, I don't know, run of the mill may not be the right word, but just kind of your standard, um, you know, employee at, at Google who is looking at, at data analytics. There's a big gap there and <clears throat> there's various ways that we need to be addressing this. So I will say that at my new school, uh, our computer science department's being renamed ideas and the A is for analytics. And I am excited to see the, the direction that that's going to take with intention to say we need our kids to be savvy and powerful with analytics and being able to utilize analytics, read analytics, um, but but use them to to good effect. And uh, that is a shocking article. And I will look forward to diving even deeper into it. And, and we've mentioned Jumbo before, but there are these tools like Jumbo for privacy that will allow you to periodically delete some of your data, like your Google Maps data. Do you need Google forever, you know, to keep all the location data of everywhere you've been? Now, if it's been uploaded to the cloud and somebody's already archived it, maybe it's too late, but probably not. Privacy settings can make a difference. And so you can decide how you want to save things and how long you want to let those things be saved in the Google cloud. And if you want to have them deleted on an automated basis, and that's called jumbo privacy. If you know of other tools that are like that, please let us know. We shared that one probably over a year ago on the show. Yep, totally. And one other story uh, just about that map sharing piece, um, you know, that also works on Apple. If you use Apple Maps to go to a location, you can share like like if you if you go to Apple Maps and say, I want to go to like my friend Mike's house. Right. And, and his address is in is in my my uh, my my contacts. And I say share my you know, share my location. It texts Mike when I'm near his house. Right. Which is just an incredibly interesting a prospect that I think is um, uh, uh, pretty wonderful and, uh, you know, very useful. But, you know, you're exactly right. We need to find a way to have these tools be friendly to the consumer uh, and do the great things that I know they can do without, you know, uh, you know, doubling down on the creepy factor. And I, I think that that's really important stuff. So, um, Dr. Fryer, I see that that we are down to about 10 minutes uh, left uh, uh, for the rest of the time. Do we want to go down? the tech correction rabbit hole or do we want to pick up some other stuff? Uh, I mean, we could do a couple. I definitely want to at least do one Elon Musk, but could I ask you to pick up the catfishing one? This is from a couple weeks ago, but the Montana, uh, catfishing. Oh yeah. So to be clear, it's not a Montana story. It just appeared in Montana, oh, okay. right. Um, but it, it's an important piece no matter what. Right. Um, so a teacher in Michigan, um, sent nude photos um, to students, right, 
Um, and you know, you hear that headline, and that's you know terrible, terrible, terrible. But if you start to dig into the story, what actually happened was that students. Um, uh, this process apparently is called catfishing, where you try to get, uh, uh, compromising information from a target. Um, they sent, uh, they pretended to be a, a woman that he met in an online dating site, right? Uh, started, you know, a chat with that. And, and, and I'm an old guy, so I don't really know how this dating culture works, but apparently it is common, according to this article, for people to sometimes send nude photographs of themselves, uh, as a part of the courtship process. Again, I'm old, so I don't know what this, this is all about, but, um, uh, uh, apparently, um, the women pretended to be, or I'm sorry, the students pretend to be a 35 year old woman on a dating fi- site, uh, to get the guy to send his nude photographs. And then they, the students, um, uh, um, oh, and, and, and by the way, they, they sent f- new photographs that they'd found, I'm assuming on the internet somewhere of some other woman to try to encourage us to go back and forth. And that, and that's what catfishing is, by the way. Catfishing is when they will take pictures of someone and create a persona and then try to create a, have a relationship with somebody fictitious, you know, with basically it's not just an alias, but with a completely, uh, stolen persona. So yeah. yeah, that was all, all stolen pictures that these kids use sending it to this teacher. Yeah. And so, you know, eventually this became reported to authorities and, um, um, the, uh, bottom line is that, uh, it, it is not illegal to send, uh, nude photographs to another adult. It is illegal to send them to, uh, people under the age of 18. And I would imagine by all sorts of, of, of guidelines in regards to students in a program of where you work at school. But the bottom line is, is that it, obviously the story was much more complicated. Um, I find it, uh, uh, somewhat troubling sometimes that teachers have to act you know, beyond reproach with things, right? I'm reminded of the advice I was given 25 years ago in my teacher ed program. Uh, this was aimed at teachers that were going into rural areas, very rural areas that you should never go to the bar in the county that you teach in. You should always go to the next county over if you want to uh, imbibe in alcoholic beverages. That seems like such a naive time in comparison to stories about students catfishing teachers in order to get nudes uh, uh, back from that teacher. So the bottom line is, uh, you know, be careful out there and know who, who you're sending photographs to. The charges, the article notes were dropped against the teacher yeah. when they got all the details as far as that it was catfishing. But yeah, that's one of those vocabulary words to let people know about um, the website. This person does not exist uh, is one along with have I been pwned.com that I show my kids. Um, actually, you need to be careful um, because there's a couple uh, different, this person does not exist. Um, and I'll find the, the link. Um, but, but it's an AI based system that puts together, it, it creates faces of, of people who have never, never existed before. And so for catfishing, I think though, <clears throat> that would, that would more work for just a fake profile that somebody would be creating on social yeah. media for catfishing they're going to want a series of photographs because they're going to try to create this illusion that they are this person and um try to trick somebody with that yep absolutely on the note of fake accounts one that i want to pick up real quick and i have it underneath that under the tech correction uh i originally got this off of yahoo finance and for some reason their website was down so i found the same article on business insider india which is not a website i necessarily am reading daily but the headline is Elon Musk says $44 billion Twitter deal can't proceed until CEO proves the platform has fewer than 5% fake accounts. <clears throat> I told this to a friend today. Articles like this kind of remind me a little bit about our former president where, you know, any odd tweet would just suddenly become a headline. And that's happening with Elon Musk, who, by the way, did say last week, we didn't have a show, um, that if he becomes the owner of Twitter, he will restore President Trump to Twitter because he thinks it was a mistake that he was removed. Um, so now, and who knows why, <clears throat> but he is saying that his offer uh, and the buyout was based on the SEC filings of Twitter being accurate. And Twitter claims that they have less than 5% fake accounts, which is pretty interesting. That whole concept is pretty big because when you look at the weaponization of Twitter, the use of Twitter by bad actors to do malicious and harmful things, a lot of, of that kind of of activity uh, centers around 
fake accounts that become bot accounts and that real people are not connected to. There are important issues to talk about in terms of, you know, validation uh, of, of, of identity. Uh, if you happen to be in, let's say, Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or Iran or Russia or a host of other countries, <clears throat> you know, if, if the social media platform required a biometric ID like a retinal scan or a thumbprint or something else, that can be problematic for folks that are putting themselves at risk, um, you know, journalists and, and others that are sharing human rights activists. So anyway, that was an interesting article. And um, I, I just generally think that we're going to continue wringing our hands about social media, but not really doing anything about it. No. We have seemed to have these big events happen, you know, these breaches, this, you know, Jonathan, um, who was the guy after uh, Cambridge Analytica? with a pink hair, um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> We've had multiple instances of, of whistleblowers coming forward yeah. with shocking revelations and shocking insights, you know, and, and Congress people stand up and grandstand and do nothing. And so I'm not optimistic that anything is going to happen, but I thought that was interesting. And I will say that the power to control a platform like Twitter, which is, I mean that power has been in Jack Dorsey and the and the and the uh, you know board of Twitter you know for quite a while, but shifting that out of being a publicly owned company and into private hands, again I wonder will that would that be a catalyst or and will that even be allowed to happen? I just these are things that we haven't had to grapple with before in Earth history, right? We didn't have these platforms that would give individuals the direct ability to speak to millions of people and to, and to say pretty much whatever they want. And so um, conceptions of free speech, conceptions of moderation of content, the differences that we have between countries in terms of what is allowable and permissible and what is not fascinating issues. Are the, are these topics in your curriculum anywhere in your school? Um, they, they should be, you know, these are really important issues and, and they definitely touch on citizenship and civics as far as what our, what our values are, what our laws in terms of the constitution, the bill of rights, um, restrict as well as protect. Um, but also our ideas about what, what we should allow and what we shouldn't allow, um, in the quote unquote public square. Well, and I want to do one other article that's been kind of sitting in our, our archives for a couple of weeks because it's just an example of how we, we, we aren't we aren't getting this figured out. Like things are happening very fast and it takes a while for things to catch up. Um, social media obviously is, is is in a lot of ways in a very advanced stage of that. We're not catching up. But there was an article on April 13th in USA Today about some San Francisco police to pull over an automated vehicle. Um, and my understanding was over a headlights issue. And so they walk up to it. It's a cruise, uh, a vehicle. I, I hadn't heard of the cruise company before that was uh, new to me, but they walked up to the car and then realized that there was no driver. Uh, inside the car. So it was a headlights issue, not a speed issue. The car, um, uh, figured out was being pulled over. Um, and, um, uh, uh, they also hear sirens. So they know when to pull over for sirens, right? Either if they're being pulled over or if it's an emergency situation, they need to pull over. And, um, and there's a, a funny, uh, Instagram video where, you know, that, that a bystander is seeing this happen. And um, uh, then the car itself doesn't understand what's going on. So it takes off. And um, uh, that that's problematic, too. And it's funny because Cruz uh, released information saying that, well, you know, there's there's a YouTube video available. Um, and I believe it's from Cruz. Right. Yeah. That uh, you know, gives cops. Uh, well, it's a guide to first responders on how to interact with a cruise autonomous vehicle. But just wrap your brain around for a moment the advice that listen, cops. You know, we know what you're. You know what you're trying to do here. Make sure you check YouTube before you try to deal with pulling over one of our cars. Like it's just, it just tells you how chaotic. Uh, uh, you know, this technology rollout is. I'm personally kind of excited about autonomous cars at some point because I'd love to be able to travel by a car and continue to get work done or to not have to pay attention to the road. I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon. And I think there's, there's a massive challenges uh, to that that still remain to be done. So I'm not against the technology, but we do have to figure out things 
who's liable when the car breaks the law and you know what happens if a if the car is Cruz said in a statement that it was a human error that led to this happening and that no citation was issued but as it turns out a human error leads to when someone else gets pulled over uh you know for a ticket as well so that's not the best argument to make make to explain what's going on but you know just you start to go down this rabbit hole it's pretty hard to get back out again and it makes me think about um, elevators and fire keys, right? Because fire departments have these keys. I think I'm not haven't been a fireman, but you can you, they can go in and override, and they they've got this special key, you know, that allows them to go in and take control. Well, do do police need something like that for a self driving car, you know, for something that's come in to be able to be like, okay, I'm shutting you down or whatever, you know, to yeah. to that watch that video, you know, to see these. Yeah these cops coming up. And like you said, they're, they're interacting with, with a robot. Um, and let's take it one step further, right? Because we live in the DIY age uh, and, and, the, and the age of the hacker and, and hacking can be a very positive and good thing. It's not all black hat, you know, negative hacking. There's really uh, Steve Wozniak and others, you know, that, that have started the, the whole internet revolution, the PC revolution really well, well before the internet, uh, you know, a whole generation of hackers, but, Think about the weaponization of these platforms. Think about what, as self-driving car capabilities become more and more normalized, you know, as well as drones, uh, folks are going to be able to do with these technologies to, you know, we, we've got, unfortunately, uh, different shootings, you know, happening around the country. Um, we've been fortunate here in the United States to not have lots of uh, roadside bombs and you know, common acts of terrorism that certain parts of the world, you know, th those things have it have at times been very normal. So I think that uh, dealing with uh, extreme fringe and finding ways to uh, build in protections, <coughs> balancing, you know, security and safety um, with with public interest and with with freedom, all of these things are super important. And no, that wasn't a killer drone that the cops were were dealing with. Uh, it was a self driving car. But still, the fact that they are coming up to a driverless car, maybe fairly powerless to do anything. I mean, unlock the vehicle. There was no one to shout out inside to say you will open the vehicle. I mean, I guess they could have used their weapons and you know, you know broken the glass and opened the door, but really, really a, um, a sign of the times and, and a sign of issues that we need kids to grapple with, right? Yeah. The, the, the current generation, the next generation, these are the, the kinds of problems that we need to wrestle with. So Dr. Neifer, I'm afraid the time has slipped by yet again. And, uh, we have talked for an hour. Yep. We have. Well, uh, Dr. Fryer, what is your geek of the week, sir? Okay, I have got two quick ones. Um, I've learned this last week about a great free WordPress plugin from Google, and it is called SiteKit. And I went ahead and installed this on a couple of my Google sites, and it really facilitates the process of getting Google Analytics. If you'd like to join the surveillance state and help, you know, or profit from it yourself in a very minuscule way, uh, you can run Google Ads, but also have a lot of really good data from Google Analytics about your, your site and who's visiting and who's leaving and the pages and all of that kind of stuff. So that's free and good. Uh, ERCOT is, I think, the uh, organization that supervises power and regulates power in Texas, which is kind of wild. You may have remembered that we had an almost catastrophic failure of the entire power grid in Texas, um, I think winter before last. So there was a tweet that Doug Lewin, uh, who is, uh, well, anyway, he's on Twitter and I've got the, the link in there. He's got some graphs showing how the peak forecasts um, in early May were, were just fluctuating big time. And if indeed we have the very hot summer that some people are saying we're going to have, uh, it's a little crazy to see um, how much power is costing and whether or not, you know, in Texas specifically, they're going to be able to, to meet demand. And then last of all, in my overshare, um, I'm going to share Akinator. Have you heard of the Akinator game, Dr. Neifer, or played it? Well, I have one, not. Of, one of my fifth graders shared it with me. This is a Swedish-based game. It's sort of like 20 questions. And so you think in your mind of, uh, uh, you know, Tom Hanks or Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever, some famous celebrity movie star. And, and then the the app 
the AI built or, you know, powered app will start asking you questions. And then in short order, it will guess exactly who you are thinking of, but did not say. And it is uncanny. And it's really fun to use with kids. The explanations. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Um, so a cool use of AI, free and open source. Of course, it's getting smarter the more we use it. And so the Akinator folks are happy, I'm sure, to have that as a Geek of the Week because the boost that they're going to receive in traffic is going to be unbelievable following EdTech Situation Room, episode 259. Sorry, I was just playing Akinator. Um, <laughs> the, and I would like to share, so um, I, I, I sometimes share some information about my health. I'm immunocompromised, uh, which means I've been extra COVID careful. I've had a kidney transplant, which means I, and I take uh, immunosuppressant drugs, uh, three of them, as a matter of fact. And um, uh, for better or for worse, um, the drugs have meant that uh, vaccines, COVID vaccines, have been less effective. And in fact, I'm participating in a John Hopkins study about uh, solid organ transplant patients and that very issue. I'm going to get some Evashul on Friday, which is the uh, uh, prophylactic drug that's been approved for emergency use uh, that that it, it, it could either help prevent COVID or make COVID less severe. And there's some very uh, impressive data from Europe uh, uh, for uh, organ transplant patients. But Next month, I'm probably flying twice, which huge deal for me. I'm still going to be wearing my N95 mask anywhere. I have a variety of very high quality N95 masks. Um, I become a bit of a connoisseur of that, but I've had to book some airline flights uh, recently. I have a family graduation. I'm going to in Oregon and I may go to a work thing in Denver at the end of June. Um, but, uh, a reminder, if you're going back into travel, although most people have already jumped back in before I have, uh, one of the best places to find flights is Google flights because it's not trying to sell you a flight. And in fact, uh, uh, this is based on, and I can't remember the name of the system now, but there used to be a massive flight database that existed pre-internet that Google bought like seven or eight years ago that they turned into Google flights, but it's a wonderful tool for trying to find flights that, you know, over multiple airlines, but they're, they're not getting a cut of any of it. They're just doing it as part of its information mission. And uh, uh, I've been able to find great deals this way, and it will link directly to the flight directly to the airline's website, which is where I think you should be buying your flights and not going through a third-party uh, piece. Sometimes that costs more, and also there tends to be less flexibility, and airlines sometimes are a little snooty when you don't buy directly from them. So Google Flights, flights.google.com. And it actually shows the amount of emissions that yes. that particular flight on that aircraft is going to, you know, the amount of carbon dioxide that's going to put in the atmosphere, which is very interesting. I've never seen that before on a flight, uh, flight uh, purchase search, you know, a flight tool. Yep, totally. Wow. Well, Wes, um, uh, we're at the end. Where can people find you on the Internet? I'm W. Fryer on Twitter. You can visit westfryer.com slash after and Come cook with me on TikTok. Uh, awesome. And I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. This here, however, is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, although moving later this summer to a uh, aggregated podcast app near you to 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 8 p.m. Central Time, and 9 p.m. Um, on the East Coast, where Dr. Fryer will still will quickly be a denizen of that time zone soon. But if you don't want to join us live, although we wish you would, find us wherever find our podcasts are aggregated. You can go to YouTube. You can go to Facebook. You can uh, download a small, tiny copy of it at edtechsr.com, our website, or find all the links edtechsr.com slash links. Until next time, stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you on the next EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.